study of God's Word, let's turn to John chapter 18. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 18. We will be looking this morning in our time together at verses 1 down to the end of verse 14. And beloved, if you are in need of a Bible this morning, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, We will be reading and studying this morning out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. John 18, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, God's Word says... When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your word tells us that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask, Father. And so we come most humbly and ask for wisdom, Lord, that you would not only enlighten our minds by the truth, but that you would motivate our steps, that you would send your spirit to come and to lead us into all truth. Help us, Father, we pray, to see the sufferings of Christ and also to see his glory, to rest in your faithful providence and to trust in your steadfast love. Father, please help us now as we study your word. Please guard your servant from error, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, here from John chapter 18, we see the passion of Christ. And friends, you may have been reminded of a movie by that title some years ago, but the word passion of Christ uh, speaks of the great sufferings of Christ, all that he endured, all that happened to him, particularly that last few hours of his life leading up to the crucifixion. And so, friends, uh, this is game time. This is it. This is the reason Jesus Christ came into the world. He came for this moment to be betrayed, to be arrested, and ultimately condemned and put to death. Friends, this is that hour. And friends, this is the climax, as I've told you, of all of history. All history was looking to this moment of the Christ who would suffer and die and rise again. This is the most 
significant moment in all history, in all time, space, and eternity, the sufferings of the Son of God. And friends, what we have here in these gospel accounts is something of the record. And as we move forward, we see that as John is the apostle and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has particular emphasis, just like we might emphasize particular elements of a story. So too, John is emphasizing certain aspects of Christ's passion. And one of these is God is sovereign. And that what is happening to Jesus is not a miscarriage of justice. This is not a cruel twist of fate. This is not the death of a righteous, innocent man by evil and wicked people. But friends, the Son of God willingly offered up his life. The Son of God handed himself over to the hands of sinners and he entrusted himself to a faithful father while doing, doing good. And so friends, here in John chapter 18, we've moved out of the high priestly prayer of John 17 and John picks up the narrative again, reminding us that Jesus is moving. He's taking his disciples out of Jerusalem and bringing them to the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse one, we're reminded that Jesus, as he is processed from the upper room, has gone out of the city of Jerusalem and he has gone down that mountain of Zion and he's crossed the brook Kidron, which is, uh, it's called a wadi. So it's a brook that will sometimes flow if there's a lot of rain. So in the rainy season, there might be a little brook or stream or a tiny river that will flow through this Kidron Valley. And so here we are, Jesus is crossing this little brook Kidron, uh, and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the appointed place. And we're reminded that he goes there with his disciples. So he's not alone. He has his disciples with him. Namely, he has the 11 apostles. Remember, Judas has left to go his own way. Judas, the betrayer, has been exposed, and Judas has been dismissed by the Lord Jesus. And he goes to this garden, and they enter inside. So the scene is this. It's a walled garden. You can think of stones being laid out in this beautiful garden, and it's a secluded place. It's a, a kind of a quiet place. Remember, Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims this time of year. There's thousands and thousands of Jews that come to Jerusalem for worship. And so this is a little sanctuary. This is a little peep place of, of peace and rest and calm. And Jesus often meets here with his disciples. So presumably, when Jesus has been in Jerusalem before, this has been a place to gather the disciples for prayer, for teaching, for fellowship. And it is a place where Jesus now turns to be the place of his betrayal. Well, in verse 2, we are reminded of Judas, who betrayed him. Now, friends, betrayal is probably one of the worst, most devastating sins that can ever be committed against us. Uh, you know, we think of, for example, the plays of Shakespeare. Remember, etu brute, so die Caesar. We think of Caesar's assassination. We think uh, of betrayal, perhaps, in our own lives. Betrayals of spouses, betrayals of friends, betrayals of family. Friends, and in a sense, the people that can hurt us the most are the people that we love the most, the people that we've trusted the most, the people that we have brought into our closest spheres of confidence. Friends, we don't mind when those on the outside 
You know, it, it hurts when our neighbor across the street or a co-worker at work slanders us or says something awful to us or plots for our demise. But how much more does it cut us to the core when it's someone we love and someone we trust? Betrayal is one of the deepest, most devastating sins that men commit one to another. Well, friends, I want you to be reminded on the first point. Jesus knows the sting of betrayal. Touching his humanity, friends, he felt it. And friends, the thing about it is, is we don't often know who or when or how we are going to be betrayed. But Jesus did. He knew every element of this. And he still brought Judas into his confidence. Still gave to him the office of apostle. Still allowed him to accompany him in his ministry year after year after year. It is the same Judas the betrayer that Jesus condescended to wash his very feet. Now think of that. To wash the feet of a man you know will sell you for a handful of silver. Jesus knows the sting of betrayal. And Jesus went to this meeting with eyes wide open. He went here knowing that despite all of the evil and wickedness that Judas is perpetrating and the power of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the Pharisees behind him, no matter what forces of evil are aligned against him, that he was going to the cross for the glory of God, for the glory of his Father who gave to him a people to redeem. And it would be through that cross and by the means of all this betrayal and suffering that salvation would be accomplished for his church. Jesus set his face like a flint and he trusted The Lord, he trusted his father that no matter what betrayal would come, that God would be faithful to him to the end. Friend, I pray that as you and I suffer betrayal, that we will remember Christ, our model, Christ, our Savior and Lord. And as we follow in his footsteps, let us ask the spirit to help us to see that when those circumstances come, our God is ever faithful and good, that our Lord Jesus also suffered betrayal. That he knows what it means to hurt and to be in pain and to suffer all of that indignity. And we are reminded that we have a sovereign God who reigns and rules over all of that pain. And in the economy of God, none of it's meaningless. This betrayal is a wicked deed. But friends, it is by the means of this wicked man and evil deeds that salvation comes to sinners like you and I. So friends, I pray again that that frames our perspective when we encounter such devastating evil like this. When it comes near to us, let us like the Lord Jesus Christ entrust ourselves to a sovereign God. Well, it's the time. And so Judas knows the place uh, because Jesus often met there. And again, in verse three, we see Judas is prepared. In verse three, Judas And the chief priests and the Pharisees are prepared for a fight. They have gotten a whole band of soldiers. Remember, the Romans are there because the Jews have a history of rioting and causing some, you know, some disruptions within the Roman Empire. So the Romans have had to have a fairly heavy hand. They've had to keep the reins on. And so they have sent a dispatch of soldiers to Jerusalem, and they're set up in that Antonia fortress, and there's a garrison there. So 
The Sanhedrin convinced the Romans, and then they provide some temple police, and they have a fighting force. Because what are they expecting? Are they expecting Jesus to just not just give himself up? No, they're expecting a fight. They're expecting to go in there, and all of the disciples are going to have to beat up or kill. And they may have to slaughter every one of them so that they can take Jesus and arrest him. They have come out with all the weapons. They brought their lanterns to see and their torches. They've brought their swords and their daggers. They are ready for a fight. Friends, this is the power of the evil world. Friends, darkness and evil is powerful. And we know this, don't we? It's, it's terrifying in some respects when we think of it. When we think of the evil that lurks in this world, when we think of that there is real evil and sin that men and women perpetuate. And friends, when we are face to face with the monstrosity of evil, friends, it's very terrifying. Well, friends, all of that power of evil is now being set upon Christ. The lion's fangs are bared. All of the, of the claws have come out. This is the might of the world, friends. And yet Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is conquering through his suffering. So friends, don't despair when you see the power of evil. Don't be, uh, let us not be chicken little, right? When we see evil in high places, when we see wickedness abound, let us not be those who say the sky is falling, but let us remember that our God is in control, that our God is faithful, that Christ has won the victory and we share in his triumph. Friends, No matter what power an evil world and wicked sinners may bring to bear, they cannot destroy Christ or his church. But they will try. And so we see that attempt. They come there. They have all their weapons in verse 4. Notice in verse 4, Jesus and his omniscience. That word omniscience just means all-knowing. Jesus knows all things touching his deity. He knows all things touching his humanity. He has understood the scriptures and he knows that this is the day where he will be betrayed. He understands the scriptures must be fulfilled. He understands that this is the time the betrayer has come. And so Jesus, with eyes wide open, comes forward out of the gathering of the group of his disciples and he walks himself in front of this armed brigade of soldiers and of police. And he asks them a question. Whom do you see? They're not there for a midnight prayer vigil. They're not there to take care of some cleanup in the garden area. This is a sham. They've come out as against a robber. They've come out as against, as against an insurrectionist, against one who is worthy of death. They've come out armed to the teeth just like they would against some terrorist. But Jesus, face to face with that evil, comes forward and asks them who they're looking for. And they don't hesitate. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. Oh, remember, Jesus, his, the town where he was raised, remember he was born in Bethlehem, uh, and his adopted hometown after he grew up, He moved away and he settled in Capernaum. So sometimes Capernaum is called his hometown. But but Nazareth was the city where he was raised. 
where he grew up, where he lived with Mary and Joseph and his siblings. And that is how he's designated. He is Jesus of or from Nazareth. And so they said, we're looking for him. And Jesus replies, verse 5, I am he. Now, friends, as we look a little bit further, we're reminded that when Jesus says this, something is behind those words. I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, John reminds us, was standing with him, aligned himself with the powers of darkness. And in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is the very last of the I am statements of John's gospel. Remember, we've seen this I am statement many times. And in Greek, the construction is very simple. It's ego, a me. Makes me think of let go of my ego. But ego, a me. And what does it mean? It means I am, I am. Or I am who I am. And this is a direct reference back to the, again, tetragrammaton, that four Uh, that, That word of God's divine name where he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. When God gave his divine name, it looks to the book of Isaiah where God says, I am the Lord and there is none other beside me. I am who I am. And friends, when God makes that declaration, it's not simply God saying, what you see is what you get. But God is saying, I am the I am. I am being itself. I am self-existent and eternal. I am the eternal, unchangeable one. I am the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things belong. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. When God says, I am who I am, it means that he is unlike any other creature or thing in this entire universe. You know, we are all, we all mutate. We all change. Friends, you will be different tomorrow than you are today. You're different today than you were yesterday, if not one day older. And friends, we see changes in our life. Our hair falls out. Our strength wanes. We don't look like we used to. We are a people who change Physically, and we change mentally. We change mentally all the time. We don't think the same way we did when we were 14 or 15 or 18. We change. That is what it means to be a creature. We change our minds. We change in ourselves. But God never changes. The Lord our God is unchanging in all of his glory and splendor. And so when he makes this declaration here, Jesus is affirming his deity. I am a self-existent, eternal God. I am God incarnate. That's what Jesus is saying with that power. And with that declaration, what is behind that is that divine fiat, that very power by which God spoke a universe into existence. And the result is holy terror. You and I may know children or may have been children ourselves that folks called a holy terror. But friends, that concept of holy terror means that when God discloses his majesty, you know, this whole universe, God is manifesting his glory. 
But there are certain times in redemptive history where God manifests himself in such splendor and glory and majesty that when men of old behold him, they are undone. They are cut to the quick. They are, they, it's traumatic. We think of Isaiah in the temple. We think of John when he's ushered into the holy throne room. We think of Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Transfiguration when God spoke to them and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, when Jesus is speaking, I am who I am, it's as though the veil of his humanity, which seemed to cloak his deity, suddenly the glory of his deity burst forth in power and splendor and they caught just a glimpse, just a brief glance at the majesty of God. They heard, they saw the glory of the Holy One and they knew that they were before their creator and they were before the righteous judge of heaven and earth that this one who was speaking to them was none other than God incarnate. And their response Bam! Down on their face. Friends, the holiness of God is, on the one hand, absolutely terrifying. Because what it says is, God is so righteous, and we are sinners, and we deserve wrath and judgment and condemnation. The holiness of God, in a sense, is like the wake-up call that shakes us up that says, O sinner, you are under the wrath of a holy God. But it is that same holy terror which by the Holy Spirit brings us to repentance, brings us to faith, brings us to see that though we are great sinners, God is a great Savior in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the result of that trauma of God's holiness for the believer, for those who have been born again by the grace of God, is that holiness of God doesn't repel us from God, but it compels us to God because it sends us running to a God who says, though your sin is great, my grace is more. But these soldiers got a glimpse of the Holy One. And it was devastating. Friends, this is the power of your God. This is the power of Jesus Christ. This is the God you serve, friends. This is, this is no chained lion. This is no lion in a, in a petting zoo, in a cage. He is strong and faithful. He is sovereign and good. Well, in verse 6, we see that when he announced, I am he, they drew back and fell down. In verse 7, he repeats the question, whom do you seek? And they reply, chastened, humbled, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, with a little bit of humor, I told you, I am he. (laughs) I told you that. I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now you see why Jesus did that, huh? He disarmed the whole band with a word. He humbled the whole host with his utterance. Friends, When our Lord Jesus returns on clouds of glory, and he will come back. When he comes, the scriptures tell us that at his coming, he will bring an end to all sin and lawlessness. And by the word of his mouth, 
He will bring judgment upon the nations. He will make an end of all evil. Friends, at his word, all the powers of darkness will fall. All of their great kingdoms will be destroyed and Christ will reign supreme and his church will reign with him. So friends, I hope that encourages us to press on, not to lose heart. No matter how deep the darkness is, Christ is sovereign. God is in control. And he protected his disciples. And verse 9, we're told by John that this was to fill Jesus' own word, which he said to the Father, of those you gave me, I have lost not one. Remember, Jesus gave a mission report in John 17 where he said, Father, I have kept, I have preserved every one of those whom you gave to me. And friends, again, we see a couple of doctrines here. First of all, what's implied, what is told to us is that the Father gave the disciples to Christ. So we have that idea of God's sovereign grace, that God chooses of his own free will to give a people to Christ for him to redeem. So the Father's not giving a nebulous, nameless group of disciples, but he is giving a particular people. He's entrusting them to Christ. And Jesus is saying, this particular people that you gave to me, this church, my disciples, I have kept them. I've kept them. I've kept them from being destroyed by the power of darkness, by the hands of wicked men. I have kept them, the Lord Jesus says, from falling into unbelief. Friends, you know that it is by the promise of God, by the power of Christ, that we are kept secure in Him. Friends, we we don't have any power in ourselves. If it were left up to us to remain in Christ, we would fall in the next moment. But we are secure in Christ. We have a future ahead. We can be confident in our Lord because of what he says here. Of those you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus is the good shepherd. That's what he's been saying again and again through the Gospel of John. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who have sent, he, he who has sent me, that of all those he has given to me, I should not lose one, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. I give to them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, this is your security in Christ. This is your confidence in God. He has promised to keep you. If you have come to Christ for refuge, if you have heard the gospel message and your heart has been Recreated, God the Holy Spirit has come in and birthed in your soul faith and you see Jesus as the Savior you need and the King to whom you will submit when you hear of Christ in Him crucified and you say, yes, Lord, I come. When you came to Christ, Jesus says, you're secure because of all those whom the Father has given me, I will not lose one. That's a promise not just for these 11 in the garden. It is the promise of God to his church 
to the end of the age. Friends, our confidence cannot be in simply looking to a decision that we make or thinking of our own accomplishments or obedience. Friends, that is a wrong place for assurance and confidence. Our confidence is in a sovereign God. That he is able to bring to completion the good work of salvation he's begun in us. This is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, friends. And do you see how sweet it is? Do you see how glorious this is? Your God is able. So friends, practical application. Take that truth. Let it resonate in your heart. You were loved before the world began, O believer. Your heart, God set his love upon you to redeem and to save and to keep you unto the very end. And so you can live today with boldness and joy, knowing that God is faithful. Well, in verse 10, Simon Peter is not ready to give up his Lord yet. So he draws his sword, his little, perhaps his little dagger that he's hidden, and he goes and strikes the high priest's servant and cuts off his right ear. So Peter's not trying to wound Malchus. Uh, He's trying to kill him. He's either trying to slice his throat or stab him in the head, but, but he misses. And as he misses, he wounds Malchus and cuts off his right ear. Uh, John probably knows Malchus, um, knows him personally, knows him uh, individually, uh, because again, friends, we're reminded that John uh, knows the high priest's family. Uh, John has some connections in this powerful political family in Israel. So John names for us this servant whose name is Malchus, Uh, And so here you can imagine Malchus's ear has just been chopped off and there it is on the ground. And we see that Jesus rebukes Peter. In other gospel accounts, Jesus takes that ear, that severed bloody ear, and puts it back on Malchus's head and heals him. And he says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Friends, in the ancient world... uh, Wine, uh, especially in the Roman culture, was uh, concentrated. And so wine would be prepared, and then it would be, uh, in order to be consumed, you would get it out like concentrates. Very, very much like if you've ever had a soda fountain, and you have syrup, and you mix it with carbonated water, and you have your drink. So, so that's what wine was in the ancient world. So you would have this concentrate, and what you would do is you would, you would put in the concentrate, and then you would put in regular water, and then you would mix it up. Right? Even kind of like Kool-Aid, right? So you'd mix it up, and that would be your drink. In the scriptures, friends, one of the vivid illustrations of the wrath of God was the cup, well-mixed. A strong cup of the divine fury that God would give for the nations to drink. So when God would speak through his prophets and he would say, for example, Babylon you will be destroyed, Babylon, you will be annihilated, the judgment of God will come upon you. He would give that illustration by saying it's as a cup, a cup of wine well mixed. And the idea, friends, was that as the nations, as the wicked men would drink down to the very dregs that cup of the wrath and the fury of God, they would be overwhelmed Uh, Just like strong drink, as it is ingested by the human body, so much will debilitate a person. 
That is the illustration. This is the cup, the chalice of the wrath of God. It is a poisoned cup. Friends, in that cup that Jesus is speaking of are the sins of all God's people. Every one of our iniquities, every one of our lies, every one of our transgressions, every time that we had a short word with our wife, every time that we disobeyed the commands of God, every bit of iniquity was there. And God says, Lord Jesus, my son, to save this people, you must drink that cup. You must ingest within your own body, my son, all of the sins of my people. And you, Jesus, must take the wrath that they deserve. Friends, for Jesus to save you from your sins, Jesus had to drink every single drop of this poison cup. There couldn't be a little swallow left. Every bit of this, Jesus took in himself. Friends, can you imagine? The Lord of glory, he, the Lord Jesus, who lived his life in perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to God. Loving his father every moment of his life. Enjoying him. Having the father's face shining upon him in grace and love and in mercy. This one who knew no sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. Not that he didn't have any cognitive knowledge of sin. Jesus knew everything there was to know about iniquity. But he had no experiential, intimate, experienced knowledge with sin. He never committed sin. Himself. But when he drank this poisoned cup, it was because he had become the very incarnation and embodiment of iniquity. Because upon him, friends, every one of the sins of his people was laid. This is atonement, friends. It's an actual atonement because there are actual sins reckoned to Christ. There are actual transgressions of God's people that are put on Jesus and it is for those actual sins of actual saints that Christ suffered and died. It is a real atonement for sin because it is a real satisfaction of divine justice. Now friends, very quickly, sometimes we have a problem with this. We say, why can't God just forgive my sin the way that we forgive sins? Why does this God of the Bible demand a substitute, satisfaction? Friends, perhaps you today have wondered the same thing. Because, friends, in our own culture, forgiveness doesn't require a blood sacrifice, right? We we go to the bank and, you know, we work out terms. We can get a forgiveness of our loan. We can get a forgiveness of our debt from the government. We file bankruptcy. There's all these different things we can do to discharge those things, but why does this God require that his son drink the cup? It's because God is holy, and because God is righteous, and because God is good, and because this same good and holy God said, I will never, ever, ever acquit the guilty. God will never violate his own justice. 
He will never turn a blind eye to sin. God says, no, I will remain just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, God would remain just because he would punish sin, our sin, as it deserves. Hell was poured out upon Christ. That's what Jesus drank in that cup. The fury of the wrath of God. So that God might reckon to be just. Count you and I to be righteous. Who in ourselves are not righteous. Who are in ourselves sinners. He would reckon us to be righteous as Christ is righteous. So friends, the mystery of the gospel is that of a double transfer. When we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is that God, the judge of heaven and earth, says, I reckon this sinner who is united to my son to be righteous, though in himself he is not. I am putting into his account, I am reckoning him to have lived the same obedient, holy life that my son Jesus did. And so, friends, all of my sin goes to Christ, for which he died upon the cross and rose again. He receives the curse of that poisoned cup, and we receive his righteousness. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. We receive the blessing of life eternal. Like a marriage, friends, when we are wed to Christ, all of his becomes ours and all of us becomes his. All of himself he pledges to us. All of himself he gives to us. It's all in Christ. So Jesus says to Peter, this is the way. I must drink this cup. So what should this cause us to do? Friends, it should cause us to worship. Cause us to praise. It should humble us to see the cost of our redemption, to see what our Lord Jesus endured for us. And finally, in verses 12 to 14, we are reminded of Jesus' first Jewish trial under the former high priest named Annas. And we're told in verse 13 that the soldiers and the, uh, the police lead him to Annas' house. And in verse 13, remember Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, so it's a high priestly family. But Annas is sort of the power behind the throne. He's been dethroned by the by the Romans, but his family still controls the high priestly uh, office. And so, friends, this is a powerful family. This is the political elite of, of the Jews, of the Jewish nation. So, so this is, this is uh, you know, this, this is the, the Martha's Vineyard type people. They're, they're with, they've got the power. They've got the clout. They've got the, you know, all of that authority. So Jesus comes and we're reminded by John that Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, had advised the Jew that it was expedient for one man to die for the people. Now, friends, in quick compass, this is John once again reminding us of the doctrine of providence and of the sovereignty of God over sin and evil. See, Caiaphas was high priest that year. And as the Sanhedrin were debating Jesus and his meteoric rise and his fame, they were worried that all of this would cause the Romans to come and take away their place and their nation. They were afraid the Romans were going to come in and, and really establish 
uh, a different kind of rule over them. And so they were fearing for their own position. They were fearing for their own power. And Caiaphas, in his callousness, in his evil and wickedness, says, guys, you don't understand. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas intended evil. Caiaphas intended that Jesus, this innocent, righteous man, as he saw him, would be the scapegoat. He would be the the one that would be put down, that would be tread underfoot so that they could save their own skin and save their own hide. Caiaphas intended evil, but God intended good. Caiaphas was working out of his wicked, evil intent for which he is judged by a holy God for his sin, but what was working above and beyond and through the evil of Caiaphas and all of the rulers of the Jews was the sovereign, infallible purpose of a holy God. Because Caiaphas himself spoke better than he knew. Jesus would die for the people. Yes. Caiaphas. This is an example of John's irony. Jesus would die for the people. He would die for those he came to save. And friends, this again demonstrates however powerful evil may be, however oppressive darkness may become, we serve a sovereign God who takes the evil of wicked men and works them like putty in his hand, forming and shaping and using it ultimately for our good as the church and his glory. Friends, you'll recall Joseph at the end of his life. Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers. Jacob has died. And Joseph's brothers now fear that since Jacob's gone, Joseph is going to have his vengeance upon those brothers who had cruelly sold him into slavery. But Joseph says to his brothers, am I in the place of God? He says, God will be your judge, my brothers. You stand before God for your sins. Friends, those who betray us and spitefully use us, just like the ones who betrayed and misused Christ, they stand before God, judge for their sin, and God will render a righteous judgment. But Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many as it is this day. Friends, evil does not thwart the good promises of God. Evil does not derail his good purposes for his church. Be confident in him. You serve a sovereign God who by the hands of evil men brought Jesus to the cross. So friends, today I pray that your hope is in this God of sovereign grace. I hope that you're seeing Christ and resting in him this hour as your Savior and King. And if you have not, friends, uh, let me urge you. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear the voice of the living God, do not harden your heart, but come to him. Christ, this good shepherd, welcomes all who come to him by faith. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, have mercy upon your church now. Please help us to be confident in the day of distress and darkness, knowing that you are sovereign and faithful and good. Father, thank you for Christ. We ask your blessing in his name.